You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You're listening to The 30 Podcast. Here's your host, Jazz Kang. All right, welcome to a new episode. Before we jump into things, don't forget... Subscribe to the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we are there. And of course, check us out at libertyballers.com. Joining me for this one, excited to have on a Philly area broadcasting legend, Mr. Mark Zumoff. Mark, thanks for taking the time out. First question I have to ask, we're very close to Christmas. New Year's is around the corner. What are your plans for the holiday for your first time being a free man in a long time? (laughs) Jazz, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I'm just going to continue to do what I've been doing, which is enjoy another side of life. I enjoy Sixers games still. Obviously, I don't follow them nearly as closely as I did when I was the broadcaster. You know, one of the reasons I retired was to give more time to my wife, who sacrificed a lot, a lot of nights and weekends. And so I'm doing that for her and with her. But as it relates to me, I live at the beach, which is a blessing in and of itself. And I'll continue to enjoy watching the Sixers and hopefully spend some time with family and friends, COVID notwithstanding. And hopefully 2022, as we always hope, will uh, be a happier year than the previous one. Oh, I think we've all been feeling like we're stuck in the twilight zone for the last over two years here. So I'm with the you truth. on that. It is the hoping truth. Hoping this, uh, this stuff wraps up as well. I mean... Um, I didn't get to spend time with family last year. So this year, looking like we're on track to do that. So hopefully, like you said, nothing goes crazy here over the next nine days. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you you, you stepped away from the team. Uh, basically, we're, we're covering them as a play-by-play guy for 25 years, uh, more than 35 years total. When you look back at it, like you mentioned, maybe not as closely following the team, but what's it been like for you just being away from the booth, being away from the travel for the first time in, in, like I mentioned, more than 35 years. It's actually been fine. The one thing I do miss is my coworkers. In fact, last night I had an opportunity to attend Temple's basketball game, and it ended shortly before the Sixers, and I was able to connect uh, for the ride home with Ala Abdelnabi, my former running mate, and we had a great conversation. And a lot of what we talked about was non-Sixer related because we really formed a tight bond when we were working. And quite honestly, I've maintained a policy of just laying low. I want to give Ala and Kate the opportunity to sort of do their thing. And so uh, we had a great time catching up and uh, I enjoyed that very much. You mentioned uh, when we were starting the podcast, you're spending more time with your wife, trying to spend more time with your family. What do you miss though about the professional aspect about calling games overall? You know, Jazz, first of all, uh, basketball is the greatest game ever invented, and it's been my favorite sport since I was eight, and I've never wavered. So I do miss seeing a lot of live basketball and, of course, broadcasting it. 
the fact that I was the voice of the team for 27 years and covered it for almost 40 enabled me to get to know a lot of great people who taught me a lot about the game and all my research, I think, taught me more even still. So I miss that aspect of it. And I also miss the aspect of being live on television because when you are live on TV, you only have one chance to get it right. So the astute listener will, or viewer will know that I got many things wrong. But by the same token, that challenge of getting it right the first time, whether it's a call or a stat or a fact or a story or that sort of thing, uh, that challenge is an immense one and, quite frankly, one that I really enjoyed. And so the aspect of being live on the air, I miss that and being up close and personal with the game and the people that I work with as well. You're looking at the team now and, and, and you know, things have been up and down the, this season. Just a ton of COVID-related absences. They had some injuries. Uh, when you're looking at, at the squad and kind of how things have played out, just what are your general thoughts about the team, um, considering where, where things have been over the first almost two months of the season now? I don't think they're good enough defensively to live with the offense that they have now. So maybe the Ben Simmons trade will yield something that will buttress them in that department. That said, uh, as I checked the stats this morning and saw their defensive rating, not what it's been in past years. And I would hope that they can improve in that department as well, because quite frankly, I think that that's where you win championships. I know it's a tired cliche, but I've always believed that. So I think first and foremost, they have to get better defensively. And maybe that's one aspect of missing Ben Simmons, not having him and his versatility uh, might be an issue there. Um, but it's going to be interesting as the Ben Simmons thing goes, will they uh, get uh, a piece or two, A, that will help them, and B, uh, will somebody else be involved in that trade? One or two other players, maybe it's a blockbuster, I don't know, but I don't think right now as the team has constituted, anyone in the Sixers organization believes that they can win a title with this group as it currently is. So I would say that the biggest news surrounding the team hopefully will come the next uh, few weeks, maybe the next month. Of course, there's a trade deadline, which always seems to expedite things. So we'll see what happens between now and then. You mentioned Ben Simmons, and it's a topic that everybody is discussing and has been really since you know the team went out in the, in the second round in June. But when you're looking at, from your perspective, you were around the team obviously a ton last season. Did you see cracks in the relationship between the Ben and all last year, even prior to the playoffs? Or were you surprised by how all of this has kind of played out? I'm going to cop out by saying this. We had no access to the team whatsoever. So I could not talk to players individually. I couldn't see how they interacted with one another. Because of COVID, we had to stay where we are, which is in the first level of Wells Fargo Center. And of course, we did travel with the team. So really, except for speaking with the PR people and occasionally some of the assistant coaches, you had no real feel for what was going on. That said, I do believe that uh, Ben has some mental issues that uh, you know he needs to address. And it really became clear to me well before it became an issue with the media and the fans. Um, I thought that his passing up of the dunk late in Game 7 against Atlanta was clearly uh, a mental health issue. And then when... You know, he came on after that ser series was concluded and the team was eliminated and he came on wearing a face mask. 
where at a time where I think players uh, had pretty much abandoned use of those masks, especially in a situation where they were alone in a Zoom call, uh, to me, that was an indication that perhaps that was someone who was not comfortable with himself and uh, needed to have a mask in that particular time. So from a human standpoint, I hope that Ben can address these issues. It's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. To me, it's no different than... Um, you know, having a physical injury, if you have a mental injury, it's something that be, uh, needs to be addressed. He's no different than all of us. We all have issues like that in some form or fashion. And uh, whether or not he's with the Sixers in the future, which seems to be highly unlikely at this point or gets traded, I hope the Sixers can get full value for him and it helps them to going down the stretch. Yeah, you mentioned that. And we've talked about that on the podcast as well, Mark, that, you know, seeing that Ben is dealing with mental issues. Ben has been, you know, off the court stuff. You're hoping he he gets it sorted out. But when you're looking at the on-court um, aspect of it all, where do you think he'll ultimately end up? Just if you had a guess. I know that, you know, we're not saying that you would know, but just do you have any a guess or idea of where you think he'll end up ultimately? I wish I could give you a better answer. I just, again, if I were, let's say this were normal times and I was traveling around the league and talking to journalists and GMs and scouts and whatever that would be my number one question what do you know what do you hear that kind of thing and i'd be able to maybe give you a little more insight but i you know i think you can well let me put it to you this way i i'm not surprised it's taken this long because we're now at the time where players who signed before this season become eligible to be traded so that's going to expand the player pool and give more opportunities for daryl morey to work his magic uh, I have no doubt that once he does make a move, it's going to be a, a, a move that's beneficial for the team. Um, I think I'd be surprised if it involved uh, a team in their own division or their own conference, just because I don't think you want to deal Ben Simmons to a team that's going to play you four years and be a competitor for a playoff spot. So um, I apologize for not being able to lend more insight than that, but I do hope, again, that the trade yields something that will benefit the Sixers, not only for this year, but for years to come. Well, Mark, I'll be honest with you. I don't think it's a you're not giving a, a great answer because I've been covering the team, watching them every game, been a part of a few of the press conferences, and I have no clue where he's going to end yeah, up right. either at this point. Right. So right. I think we've all kind of in the, in the same boat that it's been a ton of speculation. But like you mentioned, December 15th, which was on Wednesday. Uh, more players are eligible to be moved, so we'll see. And and this is kind of the start of, of trade season anyways around the league, so I'm I'm hoping we'll get some traction and they'll make a deal sooner than later because, you know, when they started off 8-2, and two, I'm like, this is a great sign for this team because when they were starting off, the pressure was off to make a trade, and, and the, the longer they were successful, the less Daryl Morey had to feel inclined maybe to make a panic deal. So even now, they're still sitting okay, and I feel like if they can attract – you know, he's open to get an all-star level player, combine him with another great player they have in the roster. We'll jump into next. I, I think the Sixers can be in a good spot. So going the opposite way now, Mark, in terms of popularity in Philly, Joel Embiid, uh, amazing talent on the court, MVP candidate, always seems to be very honest about his feelings with the media, especially um, when it came to this Ben stuff. We saw him at, at, at training camp being like, you know, we're going to go with the guys that are here. Uh, obviously told the fans to support him during opening night, uh, the home opener part of me just saying, hey, you know what? He's a brother. So uh, I, I love the way Joel interacts with everyone. So I wanted to ask you about this. What, what's he like behind the scenes? Like, did you get to know him at all? And do you have any funny Joel-related stories you can maybe tell us? 
I can't say that I have any funny ones, although I might have to stop and think about that. And maybe later in the podcast, something will pop into my head and I'll say, hey, uh, wait a second, put that question on hold. And, you know, here's what I remember about Joel Embiid. But what I do remember about Joel Embiid is the fact that he is really worldly. So many times our conversations drifted into directions that were totally unrelated to basketball. For example, we're both soccer fans. I'm a Tottenham supporter, a union supporter. Um, he wears Real Madrid on his sleeve. I know he loves Formula One, so I allowed him to educate me about those aspects. I know that when his brother Arthur passed and he established a uh, fund in his memory and, of course, named his son after his deceased brother, it became a topic of conversation for us as well. And just life in general about living in Philly, what the fans are like and, um, you know, uh, having a family now and the importance of fatherhood. I thought last year he gave a very revealing answer. I remember having him on after uh, a win in Charlotte where I asked him about being a father. And he said, you know, it's not something I normally talk about. And I said to myself, oh, man, I stumbled into an area that maybe I shouldn't have. And then he began to uh, talk a lot about uh, what it means to him to be a father and the importance of and the legacy he would like to leave for his son, both as an individual player as well as uh, having team success. So I think all that stuff is very important to him. Um, I, and, and again, when I was the broadcaster, I would tend to gravitate towards areas that were non-basketball related as a way to engage players. I think they appreciated that. And Ultimately, there'd be a basketball question or two I'd stick in there just to uh, bring something to the broadcast. Looking back at, at your career, you know, you mentioned 27 years as, as the play-by-play announcer uh, hired in, in, in 1994. I want to go back to that period in time. We'll do that after a short break. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, and we're back speaking with Mark Zumoff. Mark, I want to go back to your first game. You, you were hired in, in 1994. What was that like for you? You had been an in-studio host and, and done that, and then you transitioned to doing the play-by-play. What was it like for you, if you remember, going back into your first game and your first season as the play-by-play guy? I'll qualify it by answering it this way, and this is little-known trivia, but the previous two years, I actually did some games. The games were broadcast on Prism, which was a paid premium service. I don't know, Chaz, if you're old enough to remember that, but uh, they had Sixers and Flyers and Phillies and uh Uh, movies, uh, much the same as HBO would have had back then. And I was the halftime host. And then in 92, there was an opportunity because 13 of the games they were televising were being broadcast on a basic cable channel called uh, Sports Channel Philadelphia. 
and they decided they wanted a different voice for those. And so I did those uh, in 93 and again in uh, 93, 94. But once I got the job full time and started in 94, I remember just being so excited. It was a dream come true. I'm a kid who grew up in Northeast Philly, wanting to be the voice of the Sixers. And now I got the gig. And I, re I remember the first ever game in 94, 95, having laryngitis. Oh, and, man. <laughs> and just, you know, not being able to express myself as I often did with excitement and, um, you know, being able to uh, call a game in the style that I became known for. So that became a uh, something where I, I needed to be patient until that cleared up. And I think about three or four games in, it, it finally cleared up. So um, listen, uh, to be able to, uh, in a broader sense, just to uh, achieve your dream to not only be able to be the voice of a team in the NBA, but uh, broadcast the, the games for the team that I grew up rooting for is something that I'll, I'll always be grateful for. How different was the technology compared to what you were doing in your last season with the team compared to that 94, 95 season, just in terms of uh, the broadcasting industry? Chaz, the internet back then was pretty much dial up. So um, it was one of those things where I remember maybe shortly before I got the job, uh, going over to a friend's house and saying, you know, I, I, I have this thing, it's called the internet and I'd like you to see what it's about. We went over and I think it took a web page about five minutes to download. <laughs> yeah. But, but what, you know, after all the, uh, you know, the, the sounds, the buzzing and, and the clicking of connecting by dial up, but once it, once it uh, connected and you could actually see that you were interfacing with a, a page that was on your computer, it was a pretty exciting thing. But back then, you know, all you really did were the games and that's it. And now with the internet, there are social media obligations. There are other digital obligations, whether it's, uh, you know, appearing on Facebook or that sort of thing. So Technology really not only has expanded the duties of the play-by-play -play announcer, but look what it's done for uh, you and Liberty Ballers. In 1994, we wouldn't have been able to do an interview like this. And now, not only are you doing podcasts, but I think there's probably like 10,000 new podcasts a day. Anybody can be a broadcaster, and that's the beauty of technology today. Anybody can be a broadcaster and broadcast to the world. In addition to that, all you need is your phone and you can be a, uh, a receiver of anyone around the world as well. So uh, the, these are very exciting times. They're wet, Wild West times, I think, for us, and um, uh, a lot different than when I started nearly 30 years ago. Well, as you mentioned, Mark, that anybody can have a podcast, and I'm living proof of that too. So let, let's, not, let's not forget <laughs> that either. But uh, going back to those first few years that, that you were on the job, Harold Katz on the team. John Lucas was coach. And let's be honest, the Sixers stunk, right? I mean, they went 24 and 58 that year. Dana Barros had a little bit of talent, one most improved player. Jeff Malone, Clarence Witherspoon. Of course, the guy everybody loved dunking on in the NBA back then, Sean Bradley. But you look at the following year, they got Jerry Stackhouse in the draft. Very talented guy out of North Carolina. Um, still weren't very good for one more season, but that kind of led to the franchise-altering draft in 1996. And Katz had sold the team to Comcast uh, Spectacore a couple months there before. But the Sixers got Allen Iverson. What do you remember about how the culture around the team changed with the new ownership and AI coming to town? Well, first they tried to pair Allen Iverson and Jerry Stackhouse. And I remember about five or six games into Allen's first season, there was a game at Madison Square Garden. And 
I think the Knicks then were pretty good. And the Sixers went in there and beat them. And Stackhouse had a great game. And Iverson had a great game. And we looked at each other as members of the Sixers traveling party and said, well, this could really be cool. This is exactly what we've been hoping for. But it never worked out because you were talking about a couple of alpha males. And I think there was only room for one of them. So eventually there was the trade. And it was orchestrated, uh, I believe, by Larry Brown that uh, sent Stackhouse to Detroit. It eventually brought um, Aaron McKee to the Sixers, brought Theo Ratliff to the Sixers, and they were uh, a couple of guys who were very instrumental in making the Sixers the kind of team that Larry Brown wanted, which was a team of uh, blue-collar guys who were unafraid to get their hands dirty and really suited the style of basketball at the time which allowed a lot more physical play and that sort of thing. So um, I, I, the John Lucas years were, were wild years right before Allen Iverson came to town and that Luke was the kind of guy because of his own previous substance abuse issues and uh, subsequent healing wanted to heal others. And so those who had had those struggles uh, were brought to the team. And unfortunately it didn't work out. I admire Luke for trying to do what he did, but uh, it didn't work out. And as you mentioned, we had some bad teams a few years before, uh, you know, finally we passed uh, the Johnny Davis year and Larry Brown came to town and things all changed. And we all know what happened in 2001. Yeah. You were looking back at Iverson's rookie year. What was it like calling that crossover against Jordan where he, where he hit the shot and, you know, there was a kind of like a one-on-one and the, the current versus the future. What was that like for you that, that moment? Cause it's still referred to now, what, you know, 25 years later. It was wild because when you were a Sixer fan back then, as you had mentioned, especially in Allen's rookie year, there was little to root for. The team wasn't going anywhere. Of course, they had the top pick because they weren't very good, and Allen wasn't going to make them instant title contenders. So you always looked for an opportunity, a moment, something where um, there would be a spark or something to give you hope. And there was that opportunity where Michael Jordan switched out on Allen Iverson. And we all know from Allen's perspective, it was the kind of thing where he had said, Hey, if I get Jordan on me, I'm going to test him and test him. He did. And you just had a feeling in the building with about 10 seconds to go on the shot clock. Jordan switches out on Iverson. And suddenly that's all you saw. You didn't see anything else. I mean, somebody could have come by with a club and hit me in the head and I wouldn't have realized it because We were all so focused on it, and you could just hear the buzzing in the crowd. I'll never forget the sound that it made in my headset, and just realizing that the crowd was into it, as I had said at the moment. You know, here's Iverson, uh, shakes free, gets two, and it was, in an otherwise forgettable game, it was a moment in time where we could say, wow, here's our guy who took on the guy who many feel was the greatest player of all time and uh, had his way with him, so... Um, it was a moment I'll never forget. And I was privileged to be there. Yeah, that definitely stands out as, as one of those, like you had to see it moment. So, I mean, even, even for me, uh, I remember I was, I was in my teens at the time, but I, I still, I still remember watching that on the, on the highlight reel. Uh, you had mentioned there, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the 2001 season, but leading up to that, uh, Mark, the team improved around Iverson made the playoffs during the lockout short in 98, 99 year. That was the first time in eight, eight seasons they had gotten there. 
And you mentioned the 2001 year where everything kind of came together. Iverson gets MVP, Aaron McKee, six man of the year, Larry Brown, coach of the year, Dikembe Mutombo, like you can go on and on, the uh, defensive player of the year. They had the best record in the Eastern Conference, 56 and 26. What do you remember most from that season where you started to see all of this stuff come together finally around you and, and especially around Allen Iverson? couple of things, actually more than a couple of things, but if I'm not mistaken, I think they won their first 10 games. So they had already established the fact that they were going to be a force in the NBA that season. Of course, we saw hints in the previous years. Unfortunately, the Indiana Pacers kept getting into the way and that had been an issue, but uh, this clearly had become the Sixers year. And the thing that we noticed most of all is how good they were defensively. And the other thing that we noticed was the fruits of Larry Brown's genius, which was to surround Allen Iverson with four guys who really didn't need the ball. Um, Eric Snow, of course, it was Theo Ratliff, and later Dikembe Mutombo, as you had mentioned, and Tyrone Hill and George Lynch. And then, um, you know, a bench that was led by Aaron McKee. But none of those guys was afraid, as I had mentioned earlier, to get their hands dirty and they were willing to give Allen the ball. And I think Allen put up like an average of, uh, I don't know, I want to say 25 shots per game that year. In fact, I remember one Sunday, and I think it was 2001, it was a national TV game against Sacramento where he had 50 on 40 shots. He was <laughs> yeah. 20 for 40 from the floor. So you're talking about literally a shot almost, you know, every possession or every other possession. Um, so, uh that's what I remember just in terms of the regular season. Uh, it took a lot of guts, but I know what Larry Brown was doing when uh, right before the trade deadline, he traded for Dikembe Mutombo. Mm -hmm. I think he said to himself, this is a team that's good enough to get to the NBA finals. And in the finals, we're going to face Shaquille O'Neal. And we need uh, a guy like Mutombo to hopefully try to at least make him work for his and defend him which I think Dikembe eventually did pretty well in the finals. The only thing is Shaq was just an unbelievable force. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, as was Dikembe, of course. But um, And then uh, just flash forward to uh, the playoffs where they finally got rid of the Indiana Pacers. That, that demon was set aside. Uh, the seven games with Toronto and the last second shot by Vince Carter beating the Milwaukee Bucks in seven as well. And Iverson having to rest one game in that series because of an injury. And then winning that first game at L.A. was euphoric. Uh, the Lakers had won in the playoffs to that point. And unfortunately, they were not to, or I, I beg your pardon, they had not lost in the playoffs to that point. And unfortunately, they were not to lose after that. But that was the pinnacle, that game one, where people looked around and said, wow, we could actually win this thing. Unfortunately, the Lakers became the Lakers and eventually won it all. Yeah, you mentioned Lakers were 11-0 going in, into that series and, and coming off a championship where they beat the Pacers the year before. And you're, you're looking at that like when, you know, Iverson had that step over moment over Teron Lue when he hit that shot from the corner right in front of the Lakers bench. After that game, what were you feeling like? Like, were you like, man, they're going to they're gonna do this? Or, or Mark, were you looking at it and thinking to yourself, uh, they just kind of got lucky against a juggernaut and we'll see how the rest of this plays out? No, we were all believers. In fact, I remember, of course, we um, we actually did some games in the conference finals that year. I'm talking about uh, televising, but we did not do anything on, uh, you know, during the NBA finals because that was all network. And so I was watching the game in seats that were so far away. I might as well have been in Pasadena. 
I think I was in the next to last row at Staples Center, but I was positioned in such a way that I was opposite the Laker bench so I could see pretty clearly the Teron Lou thing. And then once we won the game and, you know, Alan had played so well down the stretch and, um, you know, I, I would just remember being euphoric, jumping in the press elevator, whizzing downstairs and getting into the locker room because I just wanted to feel what the players were feeling. And it was it was great. Uh, the the players were just uh, I don't want to say over the moon because they hadn't won the NBA title yet, but they, there was just a feeling around the locker room that you know maybe now that they had stolen a game in LA, they could take care of business at home and actually win this thing. But unfortunately, it was not to be. Yeah, Shaq. You know, for people who didn't get to watch him and the younger people, Shaq was just a different beast. And I I've looked at the the new NBA. You know, Steph Curry beating the three point record on Tuesday at MSG. Uh, probably will add another 1500 or whatever it is over his career here to have a ridiculous number, something that would have been unthinkable for guys like Reggie Miller and Ray Allen to get to just the way the game was played. But you're looking at, and I always say this, I'm like, if you get a guy who's seven foot two, 320 pounds, can jump around like he's a gymnast, like Shaq coming up through the NCAA, do you think the NBA would go back to kind of having to play a different style, Mark? Because you look at the transition from the 90s, like you mentioned, there was games that were 80 to 74 on the on the regular. And we consider that a good game because every possession meant so much. And I saw, you know, if you watch the last dance, Mark, uh, with uh, the, the Jordan uh, documentary and the Bulls uh, that followed their final season and kind of did ESPN did a great job with that. But looking looking at how the game is played then versus now, do you think if, if another Shaq came along we'd see teams maybe try and emulate that where let's get a really good big man, throw it to him on the block 20 times a game and just let him feast and go to work. I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. I think the game has become a three-point shooters game. I think the three-point line has been the, let me put it to you this way, has had the biggest effect on the game in the last 20 years, or maybe I should say the increased use of it. For example, uh, during the pandemic, I want to say uh, a year or so ago, when we were looking to supply content because there were no games, uh, we replayed the 82-83 championship series of the Lakers. And I remember watching that game. And there was a three-point line then, but it was uh, the, the court was really crowded with players because the object then was to you know, get it inside, uh, hammer it into you know, Moses or Kareem or whoever. And I think the game was not too unlike that game back in 2001. Um, so, but now I think because of analytics and what have you, you have teams uh, regularly attempting more threes than twos in a game because the analytics have shown that if you can hit 35, 36% of your shots, it's uh, probably more than equivalent to, you know, uh, getting, a, getting a shot in the paint. Uh, in addition to that, of course, it's free throws and, and dunks or layups that you want to try to get as well. But uh, it's become a three-point shooting game. Um, and I think the NBA is always very aware of what the fans want to see. That's why the game is less physical now, because it was thought that uh, fans wanted to see a more free-flowing uh, free game. And so because of that, things like hand-checking and certain things that defenders could do, they can no longer do. So I think if the game does continue to evolve jazz, it will do so in a way that continues to provide scoring, that continues to provide a free flow, and probably continues to uh, incentivize teams to shoot threes. 
I got to be honest, Mark. I miss those games. I, I, I don't know why. I, I, I loved watching like mid to late 90s basketball and especially in the early 2000s, the post-Jordan years where, you know, people were kind of jockeying. You had Allen Iverson, obviously, who was the face of the league there. Then, you know, Kobe came up. LeBron James was drafted. So it's like the, the shift in it has been crazy for, for me to see as well, just as a, as a, as a pure basketball fan. Uh, Mark, I want to get back into that, that time with the Sixers. Now, you're, you know, after the 2001, the finals loss, um, ended up losing 13 more games. The following season got eliminated by the Celtics in round one. Larry Brown ended up leaving in, in 03. The team bought in Randy Ayers, who let's be honest, wasn't a great coach. And you know, that the things that kind of unraveled there, but you're looking at it. Why, why do you think things started to go downhill after that 2001 season for the Sixers and in terms of the partnership between Larry Brown and, and, and Allen Iverson? I think that sometimes, depending on the composition of a team, that's a natural progression. And show, so you have to continue, even when you're a winner, to evolve and retool and reshape because players get older or, um, you know, the trades happen, what have you. I think in that case, Allen was surrounded by veterans who that year may have caught lightning in a bottle. Um, you know, Tyrone Hill, George Lynch, uh, Kembe Mutombo, they were all closer to the ends of their careers than the beginning. It's not like now where, you know, Simmons notwithstanding, the Sixers had a young core to build around and, and then all they really had to do or, or are trying to do is retool around that. And, um, you know, Allen Iverson was not the easiest guy to... Um, how can I say this, build around because he was very ball dominant. And because he was, I think that what they tried to do was match him up with second scores, whether it was Glenn Robinson or Chris Weber or what have you. But uh, again, those guys were towards the end of their careers. And, um, you know, there was just this natural progression where it just did not seem to be the same as that 2001 season. Um Larry Brown stayed in Philly for a long time relative to the years that he had spent with many other teams, whether it's the NBA or college. So he was probably getting the itch as well. And there was that natural progression. But uh, not to uh, take the luster off 2001. It was an awesome time, something I'll never forget. And, you know, in many ways through my 27 years was uh, one of the best seasons for me. Yeah, that definitely was a fun run. And, and I remember I was like, because I was like, the Sixers got to be able to do this because I'm sick and tired of all the Lakers fans around the world. I I, I never liked them. And so yeah. I was hoping that, that that they would get beat at that time. Um, AI ultimately got shipped to Denver in 06. The Sixers kind of became a middling team for a while, made the playoffs three times over the next five years. Uh, Josh Harris bought his stake in the team in 2011. And there was a lot of front office turnover early in his, his time as owner as well. What was the organization like at that point? Did you feel like they were starting to maybe get some direction or were you like, oh man, what are, you know, what is going on here in terms of all of the changes that were happening uh, in the, in the front office positions? Clearly the direction was to begin the process with the hiring of Sam Hankey. And so the owners were obviously attracted to Hinky's philosophy, which was to bring in players who, um, you know, could certainly go out and compete, but not necessarily win. And the flip side of that being that you would get high draft picks, 
Uh, he gradually either traded away or allowed contracts to expire so that he could maximize the amount of cap room. And then once the younger guys, whether it was Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, uh, could begin to compete. Of course, we remember that Embiid missed his first two seasons, Simmons missing his first season because of injury. But once those guys got together and were able to take the court at the same time, boom, you saw a team that was able to win 50 games. And then, you know, they would go out and uh, uh, begin to acquire the, the players necessary to surround them in order to become championship caliber. Unfortunately, I believe that ownership, while they were uh, confident in Sam Hickey's philosophy of building a young team and eventually winning a championship, I'm not sure that they were confident with his ability to begin to go out and attract the free agents necessary or pull off the trades necessary to surround Simmons and Embiid with the best players. And I think that's what eventually led to uh, Hickey's departure and, um, you know, uh, changing things around in the front office so that um, whether or not you believe that um, uh, Brian Colangelo was the best guy or not, um, that's the way it went. So um, now, of course, I think you have a top guy in Daryl Morey. He is one of the best executives, not only in the NBA, but in sports. And now it's going to be his job, unfortunately, to get rid of one of the two kingpins, which is Ben Simmons, and hopefully get players, which will help the Sixers compete down the stretch. Mark, one last one for you. We're looking back at that you know, time when the Sixers were trying to hoard high draft picks. They got Markel Fultz traded up. Um, you know, had a wonderful year in at University of Washington, looked like the real deal, could could score on anyone. And then obviously he comes in, has his shoulder problems. People start saying he has a case of the yips, which he, you know, vehemently denied, said, no, that, you know, that's not the case. And he had the injury, changed up his shot form. But when you look at, you know, and being so close to the team and, and, and around them, you know, ultimately ended up getting traded in, in February of 2019. But looking at it, why do you think that whole thing failed with with Fultz? Was it a combination? Was it the the mental side of it? Like, in your opinion, because everybody's looking at like, okay, they got Embiid, they got Simmons. Now they got that other guy who can be like your end of game scorer where you need somebody to create off the top. But now looking at it as a, as a failed project, why do you think things went wrong for Fultz in, in Philly? Jazz, I'm going to answer it this way with a little more of a broad-based answer and say that as good as scouting is now and as thorough as teams are when it comes to interviewing and assessing potential draft picks, it's still not a perfect science for whatever reason. And so Brian Colangelo did what he thought was best. He identified Markel Fultz as a guy who he thought could fit in. He felt as though he was the best player in the draft. Uh, injury issues and alleged yips notwithstanding, I think that turned out to not be the case, that he was not the best player in the draft. And so you live with that. Um, uh, as to uh, the yips, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think that was an issue. Although um, I do believe that the, in the injury that he had was real. And I think that that may have eroded his confidence because he couldn't physically do the things that he wanted. Uh, but I think Markel Fultz, once he is healthy for the Orlando Magic, is going to turn out to be a good player, not a great player, and maybe not a player in retrospect that was worthy of the top pick, but certainly um, a guy who's a good player and is going to last a long time in the league.
yeah, hopefully, you know, from the human standpoint, you want to see him fulfill that, have no a nice doubt. long career and, and yeah. you know, make as much money as he can and, and maybe win a championship. Although I wouldn't hold my breath for that happening in Orlando if I was him. Um, we'll wrap up with this, Mark. We'll just have some rapid fire questions, getting to know you about your time um, as the team's play-by-play man. Favorite road city to travel to during the season? San Francisco. Uh, I love the diversity, the culture. Always had warm fuzzies. Northern California is an awesome place. And it always seemed to be that we would get a day or two off and be able to go to wine country or something like that. So uh, I would have to say San Francisco. What was the best city for you in terms of food? That's a really good question. You have to go to New York City only because of the sheer variety and just the fact that it's New York City. So there's a lot of uh, variety and uh, diversity. I guess I'm repeating myself here, but you would think that some of the best in the world end up in New York City, and so we would always have a good meal there. Um, I'm kind of partial to my own city, so um, I got to give a shout out to the city of Philadelphia because even though it wasn't, you know, dining out with my my colleagues because it was a home game, and typically we were um, we were in line just to get a press meal that night. But I, you know, I like my own town for restaurants as well. What are, I'm not going to put the pressure on you to come up with one, but what is, what are some of the most memorable games you called during your career? Jazz, I, I, I actually always point to, you had mentioned the 98-99 season really briefly, but uh, the Sixers were um, in no man's land for eight years. They had failed to make the playoffs after last making them, I want to say, 91. They traded Charles Barkley, and that became a dark age for the team. But uh, in 98-99, which ironically was the lockout year, I think they only played 50 games that season. But um, the Sixers were, I want to say, a six seed. Orlando was a three seed. And uh, they managed to split the first two games of that series. And they came back ready to play the first home playoff game in eight years. It was the first playoff game, I believe, at Wells Fargo Center. And I just remember because it was my first home playoff game as the voice of the team then that uh, it was just a wild atmosphere. And I will swear to this day, and I don't know if there's anybody around who can deny it, but I remember when the teams came out to warm up about 20 minutes before the crowd got on its feet. And in my mind, it was like they never sat down. They were just jacked throughout the game. Uh, Iverson had what I believe is still an NBA record, 10 steals. I mean, he was just, all over the place. It was like he was five guys out there on the floor. I remember Matt Geiger, there was an incident right in front of the Orlando bench where it looked as though for a second, the late Chuck Daly, who was the magic coach then, was going to get into a fight. I mean, it was just a crazy scene. The Sixers end up winning the game. They go up 2-1 in the series. It was the best of five then, so they won the next game. And, of course, they went on to, to play and lose to Indiana. But that, to me, has and will probably be, since I'm not coming back, Uh, my most memorable game is the voice of the team. If you weren't into broadcasting, what would Mark Zumoff have done for a career? That's a really good question. And people have often asked me that. And I got to tell you, I'm not real bright. I don't have a lot of different skills. I do think that uh, I enjoy being a people person. So maybe public relations, sales, marketing, that kind of thing, where I could go out and meet people and schmooze. I think the schmooze aspect was something that I really enjoyed as the voice of the team. So before the game, whether it was talking with players or coaches or scouts or fans or anybody around the game, 
uh, was something that I really enjoyed. And unfortunately, to this day, is one of the things that I'll really miss. No, we're lucky that we we had you on the broadcasting side, Mark, because I don't know if I'd want to see you as a, as a shoe salesman or anything like that. <laughs> Final ones for you here, just a couple more. Who are yeah. some of your favorite players that you covered while you were with the Sixers? So as I mentioned, Chaz, I, I like to think that I'm a people person. So whether a guy was talkative or not, I would always like to think that in some form or fashion, I had a pretty good relationship with everybody. But I think that uh, among them all, and I, and I want to go back to the time that I was the halftime guy, Julius Irving was just magnificent. He was gracious. Once you could get him, because people were always asking for his time, he was always very kind. And he was the kind of guy that when you had him in your sights and it was one-on-one, uh, the rest of the world kind of went blank because you were so enamored by the fact that you were spending time with him. And he always had the ability to make it feel as though you were the most important person in his world at that particular time. Uh, Charles Barkley was always very quotable. And the smart people like the late Phil Jasner would always wait around until the end when they could get Barkley one-on-one because those are the times when the really good quotes came about. Uh, Maurice Cheeks was always sensational because he never liked to talk, but when you could get him one-on-one, just gave you some great insight into the game. Coaches like Billy Cunningham and Jim Lynham and Matt Kukas were always great. They taught me the game. Larry Brown was that way. Uh, Allen Iverson, again, was the kind of guy who – uh, you know, would be uh, a little reticent to spend time with the media. But once you got him talking was awesome. And then later on, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, Brett Brown or uh, even, even though I never actually got to spend time with him in person, Doc Rivers, always very gracious with his time. Assistant coaches, too many to name, uh, taught me a lot about the game. And then, uh, you know, even Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, once you got them one-on-one and were able to get some uh, precious time with them, were always terrific. So uh, the NBA, even though teams compete, they compete in games and for players and only one team wins a title, I always found to be a family. And again, that's uh, an aspect of the job that I'm really going to miss. All right, Mark, last one for you. Not centric to the Sixers, and I'm going to put some pressure on you with this one because I feel like it's a 50-50 answer most of the time when people discuss this topic. You saw these players play a ton of games against the Sixers over your time. Where do you sit on the GOAT debate between Michael Jordan and LeBron James? I have to tell you that Michael Jordan is still there, but as LeBron James continues to achieve different individual milestones and the fact that he is succeeding at his age, as much as he is, he begins to, I think, attract my attention even more in that debate. I will say this, if he could win at least one more title before he is done, then he may have that debate wrapped up because he will not only be a great scorer, but he's um, you know, an outrageous playmaker, more so than Michael Jordan. Uh, may be equal in status in terms of his defensive ability and uh, will have then, what, five titles as opposed to Jordan six. So, you're, you know, presuming he wins one more. So uh, that, that may change my mind at some point. Uh, I think he wants to play with his son. I think that somewhere in the back of his mind he has that. 
And, uh, you know, the way he is going right now, good health notwithstanding, he may very well be able to do that. If he does that and wins another title and continues to, my goodness, you know, if he continues at this pace and he lasts long enough into his 40s, he could, he could eclipse Kareem and become the game's all-time leading scorer. Uh, you could always ask yourself, what if, if Michael Jordan had missed those two years, would he have been a champion? Would he have won eight straight titles and had eight in his career? Uh, you could what if yourself uh, to death, I suppose, but it is what it is. And again, I think if uh, LeBron lasts into his 40s, if he eclipsed Kareem, if he can win another title, if he could play with his son, then he may w- very well be the greatest of all time. Oh, we're looking forward to seeing that because, I mean, I I, I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan. I'm, I'm with you. I'm like, I, he still stands at the top to me just because of how dominant he was. You almost had this feeling that the Bulls aren't going to lose. And they came close a few times with Utah, you know, taking them to six both times there in, in, uh, in 97 and 98. But ultimately, I, I agree with you. I, LeBron James has, has been a freak of nature and just what he's able to do at his size. And and you mentioned, you know, knock on wood that he stays healthy. I think that'll be something to, to keep an eye on in the bigger scheme of things when it comes to the NBA. Mark, this was fantastic. Yeah, I, I, just, I just wanted to interject, and, and, and I know you got to wrap up, but you said dominant. To me, the game's most dominant player ever was still Wilt Chamberlain. Now, I, I assume that when you're talking about Michael, you're talking about guys who dominated as relates to uh, the NBA titles where he won his six. But uh, even though Chamberlain played at a different era, and I'll always maintain you cannot compare guys in different eras, but for when he played, when you take a look at the stats that he put up, uh, records that are just, uh, they're, they're, they're totally mind-blowing, scoring 100 points in a game, averaging 50 for a season, averaging you know well over 20 rebounds several seasons, never fouling out of a game playing every minute of every game in a season. I mean, that's, that's stuff today, even though travel's better and medical care is better, is, is you know, just not going to happen. So uh, when I hear the word dominant, Chaz, with all due respect to you, and I, you sound like a knowledgeable guy, in my humble opinion, uh, most dominant, if you're saying most dominant, that's got to be Philly's number 13. May he rest in peace. All right, that, I, I can't argue with that there. Like you mentioned, everybody's got their opinion on it. I was I'm way too young to be able to see Will Chamberlain play. I've, I've heard, read about it. But yeah, I was saying in the sense that Jordan, just dominant in terms of closing out games, um, winning, you know, being able yeah. to be like, yeah. get this guy I, the yeah. ball with two minutes left. He's going to deliver for you. So. I, I, I can't and I can't dispute that part of it. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That's what makes the NBA great. That's what made makes basketball fun. And as you mentioned, it's to me. I I love watching basketball. I could do this all day for for the next forty years of my life and and never be unhappy about it. Right, 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 for sure. And I'll I'll continue to be a fan and watch. Maybe not as often as I would have as a broadcaster, but uh, I'm a Sixer fan to the day I die for sure. Well, Mark, I want to say, like I said, thank you so much. This was this was great having you on. You know, talking about your career and and getting to look back at a lot of the history of the Sixers. And as you mentioned, 27 seasons as, as a play-by-play man. I know a lot of people miss the zooisms. Uh, Kate Scott doing a great job though, but I just want to say thank you very much for, for joining us and, and looking forward to hopefully having you on the podcast again in the, in the future as well. Jazz, I appreciate it. And I know when you interview a guy like me, you got to be really good at turning garbage into gold. Oh, no, no. Trust me. You, you, I'm the one turning gold in the garbage on my side, Mark. So trust me, you, you helped us uh, You helped us out there tremendously. Uh, that'll do it for this episode. Like I mentioned off the top, don't forget, subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. You can catch us wherever you get your fix. Of course, Paul Jackson, Dave Early, and the crew has you covered online as well at libertyballers.com. <laughs>